Welcome to the Deaf Studies Podcast, a podcast dedicated to the breadth and diversity of voices in and around the academic field of deaf studies. With your hosts, Dr. Renske Visser and Dr. Bethan Michael Fox. Let's get started. Hello, Renske. We're starting off with your beautiful laughter today because you were just sat there being, I was like, right, let's get started. And you're like, yeah, you're the one who needs to press the button. And it was me. It was me. So how's it going? Well, that's a a metaphor for how it's going. For me, it's completely overwhelming at the moment. I'm sort of like mid-house move. I'm at my parents' house. It's, uh, there's a lot going on, but I'm very lucky to have a roof over my head and to be talking with you this afternoon and to have spent my Sunday editing this super interesting episode. So how's it going for you? I, I Every week we comment on this when we talk, but um, you send me pictures and it's always snowing. Like, I don't know how you cope with that level of cold. It's, it's a short window of no snow before snow returns. <laughs> no, I sent you a picture today because I was on a bus home from teaching and there were just a family of deer going through some people's gardens in the snow. And the the, the picture I sent you was awful because they were in movement and I was in movement. But like nature, snow, wildlife. But yeah, you get used to it best. It's also, I have to remember every year that spring arrives later in Finland than it does in the UK and in the Netherlands where I've lived previously. So you will send me pictures of barbecues or sunny weather way before I will be able to enjoy that. But I know it will happen at some point and then winter will be back. <laughs> but in the meantime, you'll you'll come to the UK as well and visit, won't you? And we'll have some time here. And then I hope that as the children get older, I will be able to abandon them so that I can come and hang out with you in Finland and enjoy a bit of picture postcard snow time. Or sun, because in the, win- in the summertime, the sun doesn't really go down. So you can pick your season. Yeah, do you know, I'm not sure which stresses me out more. <laughs> perpetual sunlight or perpetual snow. Oh. But this summer we've got some plans, haven't we? We've been very, very happy to to find out that we're having a live podcast recording as part of the CDAS conference this year. That's the Centre for Death and Society. And they've got a conference, I think, in May this year. Is that right? It's May. It's coinciding with this year's Dying Matters Week which is a week held annually in the UK that encourages people to talk about death and dying. And we'll be doing a live record with no other than Tony Walter, Professor Tony Walter, who I also worked with when I did my PhD at the Centre for Death and Society. So I'm very excited to speak with Tony about some of his work. And I think he is one of the people also who really instigated death studies in the UK and so many people still to this day are building on his work. So I'm looking forward to that conversation in May. Absolutely. Big name. Tony Walter was very exciting. And Tony's been very kind and supportive of the podcast and given us a little review for our website in the past as well. So it will be wonderful to to talk to Tony and have a little bit of an opportunity to have questions come in as well. So it, it's available for anyone to attend, isn't it? That part of the conference will be open to anyone who wants to come so you don't need to be attending the conference if you can't make it or you can't manage the ticket cost then you can come to our live interview with Tony as part of the free offering that will be on throughout the conference so we will release the date and information about that once it's all shored up and confirmed on all of our social media channels 
and we'll announce it on here in a later episode as well. So watch this space for live Tony Walter interview. Yeah, and I also think our guest today, Beth, was one of the people that was very high on the top of your list when we started this podcast. Do you want to announce who we're talking to? Oh my gosh, yes, I'm so excited. So it's Professor Helen Wheatley, whom I've used her work for a very long time, and she's just amazing and wonderful. We've got, yeah, this really interesting, we think fascinating interview with someone who's currently writing a lot about death because her work has historically been about the Gothic, which is something that we talked about briefly on the podcast in relation to Dr. Ruth Heholt and her episode and, and some other episodes we've had in the past. But the Gothic is quite a sort of literary concept. So it's something I came across a lot during my undergraduate and postgraduate degrees. And then, as you all know by now, if you listen, I'm super interested in television and Helen's work then was really foundational in the idea of the televisual gothic and writing about the gothic in terms of television. So Renska and I have both drawn on her work in stuff we've written together about representations of death and young people on screen and how that often ties in with gothic traditions on television. So we were absolutely thrilled that Helen is going to be writing a book called Death Forward Stash TV. And that book is going to come out early next year. And she talks about it a lot in this episode. And we recorded this when, like, March last year? Some, some, yeah, sometime in 2022. So a lot of our talk is about things that are about to happen. So we, she talks about being, I think, halfway through writing her book. I think by now she has submitted a copy to the editor. We also talk about how we are editing a special edition on Death on the Screen, which we've released already. And we're, uh, a lot of the people who contributed to that have also cited Helen's work. And so it's also nice to come back to these episodes to see that we are doing stuff, Beth. Things are moving forward. Oh, we're always doing stuff. <laughs> Whether it ever happens is <laughs> the interesting thing. But no, yeah, it was so great to listen to it again. And I'm so looking forward to reading the book, but it's wonderful to hear about it here and hear her talk as well about a couple of articles she's written for a website called Flow where some of the work she's doing towards this book, writing about grief on television, writing about death in television, is available free to read on the website flow. So she talks about things that have come out and that was actually last year. So that's all available now if you want to go and have a look at any of that. But I'm sure that listening to this episode enough will be just enough to inspire you about Helen's wonderful work and to get you excited to read death television in the coming year. So without further ado, I will read to you Helen's bio to whet your appetite for a really exciting episode and we'll see you again at the end. Helen Wheatley is Professor of Film and Television Studies and co-founder of the Centre for Television Histories at the University of Warwick. She was also director of the Resonate Festival, the Warwick Institute for Engagement's year-long programme of events and activities for Coventry City of Culture Year. Helen's worked collaboratively with archives and curators to engage the public the history of British broadcasting and has been awarded multiple prizes for impact and community engagement for this work. Her most recent book, Spectacular Television, Exploring Televisual Pleasure, won the BAFTSS BAFT Award for Monograph of the Year in 2017. Helen has research interests in various aspects of British television history and has published work on popular genres in television drama in the UK and US, including the monograph Gothic Television in 2006. She has an ongoing interest in issues of television history and historiography, the topic of her edited collection, Reviewing Television History, Critical Issues in Television Historiography, and Television for Women, New Directions. 
She is currently completing the monograph Television Death at Edinburgh University Press, which is due out, as we said, next year. And this looks at the representation of death, dying, grief and bereavement and at the posthumous image on TV. And that book is the focus of much of our discussion in this episode. We hope you enjoy it. Welcome, Helen. It's great to have you here on the podcast. Now, you're co-founder of the University of Warwick Centre for Television Histories, and you describe yourself as having an ongoing interest in issues of television history and historiography. Can you tell our listeners a bit about your career and research interests and what it was that attracted you to research that's focused on television? My undergraduate degree was in an American and English literature, and uh, I had the great fortune to spend a year in Albuquerque in New Mexico. And while I was there, I took quite a lot of, ho- of classes in film, uh, including classes in horror and gender. And I sort of realized that my interest was in the moving image. Um, came back, did an MA up here at Warwick and then realized that really the thing that interested me most was um, the kind of, I guess, the more popular and ordinary ends of, of the kind of audiovisual entertainment spectrum. So I'm interested in the things that people engage with every day. And, and for me, that was television. Um, so I was drawn towards the study of TV because it's something that's, that's kind of there in all of our houses that we all engage with uh, on and off uh, most days of our lives. And so it has a really big impact on our everyday life but it's something that we often don't notice or don't pay attention to or aren't mindful of so the study of television is all about being a bit more mindful of the ways that television uh draws us in entertains us um terrifies us uh informs and educates us uh all those different ways in which we engage with tv have been the kind of backdrop to my work and the the setting up of the Centre for Television Histories was really um, about kind of galvanising the work that was already going on across several departments at Warwick into the study of television history and particularly thinking about um, history of television viewing um, as well as television production and uh, our interest more broadly in sort of how you tell those histories back to an audience that cares about them. So people that have spent their lives with historical television, we get to do fun stuff like put together exhibitions and um, work with archives and work with museums uh, to tell the stories of television and why and how television has mattered to people over the years. So that's really where the Centre for Television Histories came from. And and it's a very potted story of, um, of my uh, transition from uh, being a literary scholar to being a scholar of television and television history in particular. Great, thank you. Now, it's really interesting to us that you're studying television in terms of its relationship to death at the moment, and I have done in much of your research as well in the past. So could you tell us a bit about the new book you're currently working on for Edinburgh University Press, which is, if I'm right, entitled Television Forward Slash Death? That's right, yeah, and, and you're you're absolutely right, Bethan. That it, it's yeah, there's been this kind of through line, a kind of thread running through lots of my work, um, where where death has been, but this is really the kind of bringing all of that to the fore in this current book. 
So the book is in three parts. The first part of the book, the first three chapters look at the representation of death and dying on television. So some of those are historical television documentaries about dying experiences. Um, There's a chapter in there that's about uh, assisted dying on television. Uh, And then also a chapter that's about contemporary television drama and representations of death and dying in there. So that's part one. Part two looks at grief and bereavement in TV um, and particularly in contemporary TV drama, both in the UK and the US, and thinks about how a variety of different dramas from a variety of different points of view dramatise the experience of grief and bereavement. Um, And I'm particularly interested in, in that section in how serial television television allows us to kind of explore the complexity of of grief and bereavement and and uh, trauma as as an experience. And then the final part of the book is what I'm calling the posthumous images section. So that's a set of chapters which are about what it's like to experience the dead through television and through the television archive. So that might be television broadcasts that feature prominent performers or actors who have already died. That might also be, so I think I'll talk a bit about this later on, but a big project that I've been doing here in Coventry has been all about taking the TV programming made in and about the city out of the archive and rescreening it around the city as a way to give people access to uh, their lost loved ones. Um, And so... It's about kind of engagement with the dead through the television archive and thinking about the archive as a kind of mausoleum uh, that contains the dead within it. So yeah, they're, they're my three sections and I'm, I'm kind of about, I guess, three quarters of the way through the writing process now. So in the thick of trying to make it all make sense and come together. And yeah, it's exciting it's building on on some strands from much much earlier work from my first book and and my my second monograph as well so it's kind of picking up some threads great thank you and we'll ask you some questions about those those other books and the threads in there later too i'm certainly looking forward to uh, reviewing television slash death and um, for something or somewhere so i can get myself a copy nice and early when it comes out and um, now in the second part of your book where you're talking about grief and loss that perhaps connects nicely to a tele- an article, journal article you wrote for the online film and television journal Flow, which is about dramas of grief and television and mourning. And in this, you say that whilst researching your new book, you've come to recognise that whilst we are frequently offered a television of attractions in contemporary television dramas, in which the corpse is rendered the spectacular object of a simultaneously fascinated and appalled gaze, an alternate strand of programming has developed which precisely focuses on the absence of this body, the television of grief. So can you share with us and our listeners, please, what the television of grief is for you and perhaps give us some examples of some of these TV shows as well? Yeah, thank you. Thanks. um, Yeah, I've been really lucky to be able to preview some of the book for Flow um, this, this year. So there's another piece that's just coming out, which is about representations of the afterlife that I think will be out in in May at some point so yeah the short article that came out in flow is a preview of the longer chapter which is about grief and this really came from a moment when I realized that a lot of the programming that I'd just been watching for pleasure was dealing with the subject of of 
of death, but not from the position of, you know, the kind of, we had become very used to those, those sort of crime dramas or forensic dramas where the dead body is the kind of center of the narrative and, and um, the sort of spectacle, for, at least for part of those narratives in, in the kind of crime drama that dealt with death. I found that there were a whole, a whole cycle, particularly of American dramas, that we're dealing with the experience of death where a death, you know, it was absolutely at the centre of the narrative, but the dead body itself was absent from the narrative. So it wasn't our narrative focus, but rather we might have kind of picked up the narrative after a death or a disappearance or, or bereavement of some kind had happened. So I'm talking here about shows like, let me think, They've all got really similar titles. And oh, something I was watching just last night and a really long ongoing kind of family melodrama that I think is really interesting in relation to the kind of impacts of grief is is the US drama This Is Us, which follows the kind of it, the unraveling story set in different um, time periods of a family who we discover fairly early on has lost the the patriarch of the family the dad of the family has died and and we're now into well into season six and the reverberations of that that death is still being explored in the back end of the sixth season of this you know 20 part season drama where we see the impact of of a death rather than and and the kind of slow unraveling of that impact of the death psychologically and emotionally for the characters at the center of the drama rather than the 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 death itself and for a long time in that series we kind of we don't even know how the death has happened so that sense in which the, the death itself is delayed but the grief and the bereavement and the trauma is right at the front front end of the drama um so we see that it follows this family of, of three siblings and, and and we see the impact of them on that de- of that death both as teenagers but also as as adults and we see how um yeah how their how their relationship with themselves and their parents sort of is is informed by their ongoing status as kind of bereaved people and as people in grief so that was one of the the kind of interesting uh, series that I looked at. There's there's some really another really interesting thing that people may not be aware of because it's 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 shown on Facebook Watch, which is kind of Facebook's television arm. And I can't have this the first thing I'd ever watched on Facebook Watch, but this thing called Sorry for Your Loss, and again. Right at the beginning, it's one of the Olsen twins playing this very young, bereaved widow. And I think what Sorry for Your Loss does really nicely is show the kind of, yeah, the sort of heaviness of grief, really. And the, again, that slow unravelling of the experience of grief and stage stages of grief, the kind of cyclical nature of grief. Um, the long-form serial drama enables us to kind of explore the, the messiness of grief really and and its seriality and the fact that griefs are often joined by other griefs in people's experience so we don't lose a single person in our lives we lose a whole series of people and they're connected um 
incidents in our lives. So these are dramas, long, messy, complicated serial dramas that allow us to experience the kind of long, messy, complicated experience of grief. Um, Other things that I look at in that section of the book are things like The Leftovers. What else? What else? Oh, I'm so bad with names. I can't remember the name of and Renska, you're a big fan of this stuff, aren't you? I, I'm early on in it so far, so I, I appreciate the lack of major spoilers. <laughs> I know. No, it, it's one of the series that I also the, just watching. I think I've spoken with Beth about it in the past as well. It's one of the series also watching it that has had one of the most emotional impacts on me. And I don't know if it's the, the, the weaving of the different time periods. Also, I think the music in it is really making you cry. At many times, so I've never cried as much as I have cried for This Is Us characters. It's it's definitely a melodrama. I was talking to somebody about it the other day as well, and and I think we're more wary about using this label once now than we once were. But I think it's a real woman's text. It's a woman. It's there's a real feminine pleasure in that kind of exploration of family and the interconnectedness of people and stuff that's particularly appealing. I think to a female audience, so it's it's a kind of classic melodrama in that. Have you seen Ray Donovan? No, a different point. It's it's maybe a very masculine show in some ways, but it's about a guy who's just really struggling with. He's a fixer in in Hollywood, I think, and he's um, from an Irish background, and there's a lot of grief tangled up in his mm-hmm. family. And then progressively through the seasons, there's more and more. I remember a while ago you tweeted like, "What what's the death that upset you most on TV?" And I responded with one of the one of the deaths mm. in that is, it's 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 hard. It's really really beautiful and so moving and uh, difficult to to watch and changes your whole relationship to the show. But you, you I can't stop watching because it's so good. I think oh this probably like you know quite early on in the interview to say this, but I do think that. The programming that I've watched for uh, the study for this book um, and the journey that I've been on with this book has kind of impacted my whole life and my whole experience of death and dying and bereavement and grief and supporting others in grief. And so there's this, you know, I think I've done a kind of extreme, extreme version of what I, one of the things that I'm arguing audiences do in general in relation to television and death, which is it has been a, a real form of death education for me. I've learned a great deal about the ways of dying and ways of coping with dying through watching television, through watching television dramas, but also watching documentaries that form a big part of the, the first section of my book. So I think... As I've experienced grief and bereavement and people around me have done while I've been researching this book, I've kind of come at it from a different angle, having spent a lot of time with death over the last few years. And I'm sure you two will probably say the same thing as well, that you spend a lot of time thinking about and watching other people think and talk about death. And it sort of changes you, it changes your relationship to death in the real world as well as the representation of. It's lovely to hear you say that as well, Helen, as you know, I find sometimes that not intentionally or without meaning in any sort of harmful way, but there can be a lot of dismissiveness of television as a medium in general, but also in terms of its engagement with death and loss. 
that it's sort of seen as, as always trivializing death and always doing which from my perspective it really isn't so i love that phrase tv is death education i think that's really nice the first to first chapter of the book is all about autopathographies so they're documentaries of people telling their experiences of death and dying and there's a good number of these are for, made for british television in sort of from the 1960s onwards and one of these these documentaries that I've I've looked at is a documentary made for um, BBC Northwest in 1974 called Remember All the Good Things. And this was a documentary about an art young artist called Tony Whiteley who was dying of lung cancer, and he had a young family, um, his wife Vivian, two young children, and it's a it's a beautiful, poetic, slow intimate documentary about Tony's dying experience and Tony and Vivian really talking about what it means for them that he's going to be leaving the family at this young age and then a couple of years later Vivian made a further documentary with BBC Northwest called Vivian Whiteley on her own. Both documentaries were were shown nationally as well as in the Northwest region. Both of them you know this had this really gentle intimate style of kind of telling the experience of for Vivian becoming a young widow and I have been fascinated by these two bits of television because they precisely present themselves not only as kind of intimate fly on the wall thing but also as a piece of really intimate death education so they're they're made to tell people about what the experience of being a young man dying and what the experience of being a young woman becoming widowed it's like and I have I've been fascinated with them really really wanted to to find Vivian Whiteley you know many many years later and ask her about her experiences and I won't give you the really long and boring story of me sending out various emails to all kinds of people who probably thought I was mad trying to track this woman down but I eventually found her through an art society that she's part of and have arranged to to do an interview with her later this month. And I've had a, had an initial chat with her, but she's so interesting on why they chose to make this piece of television at this really difficult, you know, challenging, upsetting time. And for her, it was all about the fact that in 1974, people weren't necessarily told that they were facing terminal illness. Families that often weren't told that, you know, their their loved ones were dying and, and that was a, a decision that was made often away from the person who's, who's in the midst of dying by their caregivers or by other members of the family. And Vivian and Tony chose to make these documentaries because they wanted to kind of say, let's bring death out into the open through television, but actually more widely around the country we need to be talking about death and talking about the experience of death and facing it together and facing up to it as an experience and so they quite unusually I mean now everybody appears on television and reality television has kind of changed our relationship to television but in 1974 it was still quite an unusual thing to do to just throw open your home and and talk about that very intimate moment in your lives and they did it for a campaigning reason and to educate the public. And I think that's a really, it's a tiny example, but it's a good example of, I think, how we can think about the relationship between television and death as telling really important stories. 
Bess and I have had conversations about uh, the importance of television and film in showing death, but also we've had conversations about the responsibility of film and television in the portrayal of death. And you say if it's used as death education, we've had discussion on how realistic should it be and what is realistic. Do you have any thoughts on, because if you use it as death education, what is it about it that you think it's suitable? Because I remember in the Netherlands, um, and I don't know if I've made this up, but I remember people telling me that the television show ER is used or was used in med, med school to teach people because it was such a realistic portrayal of deaths and dying. But then at the same time, it's still a drama and it's fiction. So could you talk a bit about that relationship? Yeah, I, I mean, I, realism's been something I've been grappling with recently and in a way, you know, a lot of of the programs that I'm dealing with. So, say the the uh, programs about the afterlife that I've just been writing about. Obviously, without wanting to kind of dismantle anyone's belief systems about what happens after you die, we we don't really know uh, what happens after we die. So, can we have a realistic representation of 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 experience after death? Probably not. But what's at the heart of those dramas and what the heart what's at the heart of lots of programming about death, whether it's documentary or drama, is I think the idea of emotional realism. So Ian Ang, the brilliant television theorist and 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 uh, scholar of soap opera, introduced the idea of of emotional realism to talk about the way that when viewers in the Netherlands watch Dallas, or uh, was it Dallas? Uh, yeah. Yes, it was Dallas. So viewers in the Netherlands watching Dallas and having a kind of emotional connection to characters whose lives and kind of life experiences are very, very different to their own. So we don't all live on big ranches like Sue Ellen in Dallas and have these big dramatic lives and, you know, massive highs and massive lows to do with with you know their finances and all of those things those things are not realistic in in the lives of the viewers in the Netherlands that Ian Ang was was working with but she said soap opera has a kind of sense of emotional realism where we find the connection in life experiences so we might not have experienced going to a ball but we will have experienced perhaps trouble in our relationships that means that there's these points of connection between character and audience. And I think in relation to the representation of death, emotional realism is really significant. So being able to show, going back to the question about uh, dramas of grief, being able to show the kind of emotional, realistic representation of grief as that kind of heavy, deep and kind of long sadness or, you know, moments of, anger or or moments of, of kind of despair or you know and then moments when things were okay and then things coming back you know that's that's a kind of emotionally realistic representation of the experience of grief and it sort of doesn't matter whether it happens on the moon or it happens in a kind of kitchen sink drama that could be a house around the corner from your own there's still that point of emotional connection between the experiences of characters on screen and the experiences of people, real people watching at home. So I think emotional re realism is really important in relation to death and dying, particularly in fictional television. There's also, of course, big debates about, I, I guess, questions about realism and also 
questions about documentary ethics when when representing death and dying experiences i've i've had that i've written about this a bit in in relation to the document documentaries about assisted dying and you know how how kind of ethically the filmmakers are trying to kind of grapple with the ethics of that you know requested death as a as a as a life experience but then also the kind of ethical dilemmas of how do we show this why should we show this what are the ways in which this can be uh shown on television i've been really interested in talking to filmmakers particularly about uh their experiences around around representing uh euthanasia and you've published in jcms the journal of cinema and media studies for those not familiar with it an article entitled haunted television trauma and the spectre in the archive that won the British Association for Film, Television and Screen Studies Article of the Year Award in 2021. The article considers a range of different kinds of TV haunting and argues, using the example of Jimmy Savile, that the production of television programming can act as a way of working through cultural trauma. Can you explain to our listeners who Jimmy Savile was and how his case highlights these issues about haunting and and cultural trauma? Yeah, so Jimmy Savile, for people who don't know, uh, was a very popular television entertainer. He was a DJ, um, then a VJ on programmes like Top of the Pops, which was one of our most long-running music shows, and also a broadcaster for children. He had another long-running show called Jim Will Fix It, which was about him arranging for children to have kind of exciting uh you know once in the lifetime experiences so he's very popular television entertainer also uh fundraiser for charity but then it was discovered mainly posthumously that he had also been a, a serial sex abuser and rapist who had uh abused women boys girls in both that he came across through his work uh, with the BBC and through his charity work and his work in hospitals, his story is one of of kind of great fame and also great abuse of power. And so I've been kind of been interested in what happens to the image of Jimmy Savile as a, one of to go back to what I was saying earlier, uh, the section of the book that looks at posthumous images. So what happens when uh, we see people on screen post their death and in the particular instance of this particular television performer who has become so attached to a sense of a kind of traumatic, hidden history of abuse, what is it then like to experience his image on screen following his death? And my argument was basically that if you look at the way that he is represented both in fictional programming, represented by people who sort of stand in for him. Uh, so there was a there was a, an episode of Sherlock Holmes, for example, where there was a Jimmy Savile type character in that drama, or indeed in documentaries that kind of deal with Savile's uh, past and his crimes. There is a sense in which he is presented as a kind of spectral figure who haunts the television viewer but also haunts the institutions that broadcast him particularly the BBC so he's very he was very much a BBC personality 
most of his career was kind of spent on the BBC. And so the BBC end up kind of doing this thing where they kind of go over and over and over their own archive, returning to this image of Savile. But now this image becomes haunting. It becomes becomes kind of spectral. I was really interested in there's a there's an episode, a couple of episodes of uh, Louis Theroux's kind of documentary of where he looked at Savile firstly when Savile was alive. Theroux does a kind of when Jimmy met Louis or when Louis met Jimmy or whatever it is and sort of experiences him as this strange kind of eccentric, slightly kind of worrying figure, but not at that time, you know, the, the, the kind of extent of his crimes was not known. And then following Savile's death, Theroux returns to Savile as a subject and my argument is that he's very much presented as a kind of haunted program maker who is haunted by the haunted by Savile, haunted by the the now the knowledge of Savile's crimes, but also kind of Savile himself becomes this kind of spectral presence in the second through documentary. I'm really interested. I haven't yet watched partly because I'm not haven't yet returned to um to this section of the book but uh, I'm interested to see the recent Netflix documentary about Savile and to see how because this this is very much kind of presented as as kind of Netflix looking at this as a British phenomenon so I'm kind of interested to see what that does with the kind of figure of Savile as a kind of haunting spectral figure in British television history and there is also a forthcoming biopic kind of uh, drama with Steve Coogan playing Jimmy Savile, uh, which is, I think, going to be broadcast imminently. Another drama documentary by the BBC about the Savile case. So I'm interested to see if it kind of continues this idea of the institution being haunted by Savile and Savile haunting his wider viewing public, but particularly his victims through television. There's this really, really something at the moment of one of the several documentaries that really stayed with me where his victims were talking about the moment that he died and the fact that when when Savile died, before his crimes had come to light, there had been a great deal of Savile on TV in that week or so following his death. And a number of his victims are interviewed in this documentary and talk about the fact that it was so hard for them in that week where he was just everywhere. The face was everywhere. The voice was everywhere on the screen. And the idea of, of, you know, we often think of television as a way to kind of celebrate those who have passed and television becomes part of a kind of commemoration process. So we've seen that when members of the royal family die. We see that when kind of really high profile TV entertainers die or other film stars die. Um, television becomes part of the mechanism through which the nation must mourn and uh, there are those kind of like TV specials that kind of get regurgitated quite quickly out of the archive and you know we often think of that as a very you know nostalgic or celebratory moment but there was this bit in this documentary where this woman was just saying there he is again and again and again and again and this idea of this face kind of popping back up and then having to avoid television screens because this ghostly image kept coming back to them, you know, shows the other side of, of, of the ways in which we might encounter 
posthumous images through the television archives. Yeah, I find it really interesting. So I, I lived in the UK for a couple of years and I think the first time I heard of Jimmy Savile was during a, a game of Cards Against Humanity and which is a very inappropriate, like dark humor kind of game. But one of the cards is blank, Jim will fix it. And I was, after people explained, because already when that card was being played, some people, the British people were already like, ooh, ooh, can we do this? Already we're laughing. And I was like, I don't, I don't know who this is. But then I thought there's also this humor as aspect and like making light of it, whereas I think they now know how horrible it is. But still, that card is still part of. Part yeah, of it's a, and and Beth used the word the term working through, and I've used the term working through to describe what we do with a figure like Savile. I've sort of talked about the institution kind of trying to work through that traumatic history, but we also, you know, that's a good example of of how we we work through those traumas, sometimes through humour as well as uh, through kind of horror, that we try and laugh at it to disarm it, try and laugh at that history to kind of disarm it in some way. But anybody that, you know, is my... I'm, I'm in my late 40s, like, you know, he was such a cultural presence. I remember I met him as a small child. I was visiting my friend in hospital in Leeds when... I was about five or six years old and he was in the corridor and I was there with my mom and it was a bit like meeting a kind of supernatural being, like a, you know, an angel or something, because for me, he was this guy that fixed things for kids and could make exciting stuff happen. So he's someone who has been so culturally present for, present for us for a really long time that then having to shift our understanding of who he was and what he'd done is is a kind of you know we're all culturally working through that at the same time in in different ways and through humor or through uh trying to kind of dig over and kind of go over and over that story it's, i think it's one of the ways we try and do it at least yeah it's so interesting and well now i'll try to make a bridge but i'm just gonna move into the next question we'll move to uh, we'll, we will turn to some of your work uh, specifically your 2006 monograph uh, entitled gothic television which is highly influential and also uh, beth and i have edited or are editing a special issue depending on when we air this episode because it might be out by the time we're aired and so many people cite this book and in it, you consider how gothic television is sometimes seen as improper and that anxieties emerge around its broadcast because it brings death and horror into the domestic viewing space of the home. So could you tell our listeners a bit about what gothic television is and how death functions mm -hmm. within it? I think, yeah, so what gothic television... I was interested in, in the gothic on TV because for me, there's a, there's a sort of deep relationship. The, go the gothic has a either a mode or a genre or a cycle is is um, something that is kind of deeply invested in homes and families and telling the stories of those homes and families and exploring kind of hidden histories and, and the impacts of deaths uh, on families and on houses. And so, whereas we sort of, People have thought about the Gothic in relation to literature and, and it began as a kind of literary cycle and, and in relation to film. 
gothic the gothic in relation to television haven't really been explored but for me there was it was sort of coming back to that idea of why I'm interested in television and kind of as a whole is is that television's just there in our houses in our everyday lives in amongst our families in our homes and so there's a real frisson in bringing together stories about you know troubled houses difficult families hauntings and those kinds of things on in a domestic medium so I was sort of interested in, in exploring the resonance between the domestic viewing context and the subject of of the gothic on tv in relation to death I think a lot of that book explores the, the gothic is a genre that is kind of fused with death, isn't it? So uh, from from its kind of interest in ghosts and hauntings, which of course have always bear a relation to death, to a kind of wider interest in kind of threat uh, and, and people living under threat and threat of death being one of those threats. Yeah, death kind of hangs over the gothic. And so I explored those things. I think in relation to the bit of your question that sort of why did people worry about the Gothic and and horror, I guess, on television, there were those kind of worries about the propriety of, of, of bringing these things into the home. So I'm really interested in the kind of early period and, and how the Gothic kind of creeps onto TV in, in the 1940s and 50s and 60s, post-war, when, you know, people working at the BBC were kind of worried about bringing further death and, and destruction into people's lives in the post-war period. So, yeah, there are anxieties about the domestic re- reception con- context makes the Gothic more resonant. But that it also brings anxieties about people kind of stumbling across tales of death and disaster and and uh, horror and things that are frightening in the comfort of their own home. And much of what I was writing about was written in a kind of in relation to broadcast TV rather than a kind of post-broadcast age where we can all watch whatever we want to watch, wherever we want to watch it. I was very much still thinking about television, I think, as a kind of domestic medium in which those anxieties about children being being upset or disturbed by tales of, of, of death or terror or haunting were still kind of, still had some purchase in relation to, to TV. Yeah, well, I was just thinking they, they still do in the sense that it's perhaps even easier to fall across content online and, and than it was through, through watching television that was being broadcast with it, because at least you had the idea of the watershed or things that would be on in the evening that you couldn't you'd know not to, to sort of watch I know uh, Renske, you had a tricky experience of watching a football match not long ago where uh, there was someone who sort of collapsed on the pitch didn't they? and I'm sure we talk about that in a minute but um, yeah now a lot of the stuff about propriety seems to be about how how incredibly realistic dead bodies are on television or the the way that it tends to be women whose, whose bodies are represented as sort of quite violent deaths and how graphic the sort of death can be but I think it's so interesting that at the very start of these television shows with the gothic being shown on screen that there were concerns even then about things that now probably people would think were quite tame. So in in gothic television I talk about two different modes of the gothic so even the kind of more spectacular end of early gothic television where we 
you know, see special effects and kind of people's faces melting and stuff. It, it still is, as you say, quite tame uh, in comparison to the stuff we would see now. But on the other hand, there's this whole kind of cycle of gothic television where, and I think some people have slightly kind of misrepresented my work as, as, as being all about this. But there is a cycle of television where, gothic television, where it's, it's quite kind of suggestive rather than showing you explicitly the thing that that is kind of at the centre of the horror or what is frightening in the gothic. So, you know, the ghost is not revealed as a ghost, but might be kind of heard off screen or glimpsed in a, in a kind of shady corner of the screen. So there's that, I talk about, gothic television in an early period sort of showing less and suggesting more and that sense in which yeah we don't get it all spelled out for us really on tv in the in the early period but then that's completely counter to something like hammer house of horror which is 1980 in which we see kind of blood being sprayed all over a children's birthday party and all kinds of of disgusting goings on, which is, you know, really not suggestive at all, but it's quite kind of explicitly horrific. So yeah, I was kind of interested in those where those two different strands develop. Another area that you've already alluded to that where people are quite anxious about messages and portrayal of images, maybe around death and dying, is children's television. And what Beth was just alluding to, the last Euro Cup was the first time Finland ever qualified, and I currently live in Finland. So uh, my partner's friends, all their kids, etc., were sat on the sofa anxiously waiting for Finland to finally play a football match in the EuroLeague. And then I think in the first half, I don't know how many minutes in, one of the Danish players collapsed and there was uh, CPR being performed live on television and a lot of children were watching and like I, we've had we had discussions i i remember saying are we just watching this person now die on television because it wasn't stopped it was just continuing to be shown and he was like being shielded by the other football players and which well, best was saying there is no watershed if you're online or you're watching things there is so much death and dying uh, potentially out there and we know you've done some research on children's television and how death is presented in televisual texts. Is there anything particular on how it's being portrayed towards children? Is there a difference? To go back to your example about the football player, because I think it's this is really interesting and it's a really important aspect of, of television death that I want to write about in the introduction to my new book, because television's liveness and parts of television still are live and sporting events are a good example but also news programming is often live as well um even entertainment programming if television is live it always carries within it the potential for death because the unexpected can happen people have kill over and have heart attacks we've seen people be shot and killed on television we've had live television suicides and then a whole host of accidents and death events uh, relating to kind of sporting activities. So television always carries with it the potential to show show death and show death live. And it, it's often kind of the most shocking, often the least spectacular death. So, you know, we think of the kind of big spectacular deaths of crime shows or horror shows and people, we see people being kind of 
flayed and burned and things like that in in kind of television fiction but some of the most shocking and horrifying deaths are the unexpected deaths that happen live on tv when somebody just slumps over whilst presenting a piece to camera and there's some did a paper for uh, scms a few years ago where i wrote about i talked about a kind of series of compilations of people dying live on television that you can watch there's there's hundreds of them on youtube so if you go on youtube and search live tv deaths you just see loads and loads and loads of these these events happening and the worst ones are just people having heart attacks and just stopping uh or just slumping very non-spectacular but yeah very much live deaths if that isn't an oxymoron but that's nothing to do with children's television though of course death can occur anywhere where where live tv is but i think uh for children i mean the stuff that i wrote about in relation to children's tv was again in relation to the gothic and thinking through the ways that gothic television for children television for children in general sort of works through fears in a safe way uh for children so often the protagonist of a children's gothic drama is is an orphan somebody who has already experienced death in their life who must kind of go through a series of trials during you know being i don't know stuck in a haunted mansion or lost in a secret garden or whatever it it might be in order to to show that they're kind of they have survived death so both survived their parents death and become an autonomous being and then survive whatever threats they experience during the course of the narrative as well and that's you know we've seen lots of those dramas over the through the years with children plucky child protagonists making their way through situations positions that are, are kind of scary or threatening in some way so I think that's about drama fiction rehearsing those fears for us um, and having having a kind of function in that again it's that idea of working through working through what scares us if death is what scares us if the death of a parent is what scares us how does one survive that what does what does one need to get through that experience so I think those dramas, I was sort of writing about how those dramas kind of play around with that experience and, and rehearse that experience for, for children. I don't know if any any deaths have appeared live on children, have happened live on children's television. That's something to look into. I mean, certainly one of the really shocking uh, live deaths on screen was the death of Tommy Cooper, who was an English uh, kind of variety comedian entertainer and he died in the middle of a kind of set on a on a sort of Sunday night variety program and he was doing he was doing some kind of crap magic some funny crap magic on stage and then he sort of slumped and people were laughing because they thought that it was part of his set and that would have been for a family audience if not for a child audience there would have been parents and children watching Tommy Cooper both in the studio laughing and then at home and and then it becomes apparent as you you watch this happen on screen that he's not in fact playing and it's not part of the act and he has in fact slumped and and then died on stage so i guess tommy cooper is an example of of a death in front of a family audience rather than a child audience but yeah there's 
there's always the potential and there was more potential for that in a period when more TV was live than it is now. But as you say, wasn't a death, was it? The, the, the Danish player survived. But yeah, that was a really kind of poignant moment of, of kind of facing mortality on screen, I guess. Well, it definitely was for me. I think it's the only time I've cried watching a football match because I was, I was thinking I'm watching someone die right now. And I don't really care that much about football, but I thought this, yeah, this really gets me. You've done more research on haunting and television, and you are the principal investigator on the research project Ghost Town, Civic Television and the Haunting of Coventry. And this project is described as being based on the idea that cities are haunted places. They are haunted by the ghosts of people, buildings, businesses, ideas of things which once stood and now no longer remain and that television archives can be haunting too. Yeah, this has been a really exciting project to have led. And we started in 2018 and Ghost Town has continued up to this last month. Um, So it was was designed to uh, take place moving up to and into Coventry's year of City of Culture in 2021 and 2022. And this was all about taking programmes made in and about Coventry out of the archive and rescreening them in places around the city. We didn't screen them in, in cinemas. There were We had various kind of pop-up venues, including in theatres, but also in we've done lots of work with Coventry Cathedral over the past few years to screen uh, material in the new and old cathedrals in the city. So for me... What I was most interested in was thinking about, well, if I take all of this programming that's been made in the city pretty much since the, the well, certainly the stuff that I had access to was really since television restarted after the war, after the war, after World War II. Um, if I take this out of the archive and screen it in the city, will there be these moments where people are brought up close to People, as you said, Renska, people, places, things, buildings, ideas that have have passed that are no longer with them. And I was really interested in the kind of emotional experience of what it would be like to, for example, see a, a, a loved family member on screen who had been, you know, who had died and what it what the experience would be like to kind of re-encounter them through the television archive in kind of public way. During the course of, of the research, I have had precisely that experience. So both people coming along who knew about the fact that uh, somebody in their family, somebody they knew or loved, had taken part in a TV programme and they were taking the opportunity to see this programming again and to therefore see a loved one again. So we've had that experience a number of times. And then we also had the experience of kind of putting on events putting on screenings and then people unexpectedly at the screening seeing people they hadn't expected to see during the course of their viewing and in both instances I talked to people about what that had been like and for I think pretty much everybody who had that experience it was a deeply moving experience in which the TV archive kind of brought back to life somebody who had gone so I'll give give you some examples. 
So uh, we run a week-long exhibition, at the, a pop-up exhibition at a place called the Shopfront Theatre in Coventry. It was an old fish and chip shop which had become a theatre and then we turned the theatre into a television history exhibition for the week. A woman in her 80s and her daughter, who was in her 60s, came into the exhibition because they'd seen it on local TV and they said that they knew that their dad slash granddad um, had appeared in a documentary, 1960 documentary called Coventry Kids by the documentarist Philip Donnellan. So I sat with them while they watched this documentary and he appears, their father, Lionel Body, appears quite early on in the documentary. He is the manager of a factory that makes a factory called BMW, not the BMW, um, that makes uh, uh, machine parts in the city. And it was wish, it was really striking as they sat down to watch him. First of all, uh, the way that they tried to speak to him through the screen. So uh, first of all, you can just see the back of him and he's got this kind of white lab coat kind of thing on. And uh, the younger of the two women was sort of saying, come on, granddad, turn around. And like trying to kind of will him to turn around through the screen. And then, um, you know, as, as he turned around and he's interviewed the camera, they kind of quietened. And then so, so there was this kind of initial trying to talk to their dead person through the screen. And then afterwards, a kind of reflection about him having been brought brought back to life through this piece of archive footage. And they were visibly very moved. I've had a number of people crying with me, which is, has been quite a, an interesting experience as a researcher. And we've created settings for screenings where people feel comfortable to kind of do that and to share stuff with us because... We've done lots of chatting, making cups of tea. It's trying to create a kind of welcoming, warm, slightly domestic viewing experience, albeit in kind of exhibitions or screenings and things like that. We had another same documentary, in fact. Uh, we showed at the cathedral and a man who I think was probably in his late 80s or early 90s had come along and there's a band that plays in the upstairs of a pub right at the end of the documentary uh kind of a rhythm and blues band a group of jamaican men uh who had arrived in coventry and kind of played in the rose and woodbine pub and uh this guy came up afterwards with his dad and his dad was kind of really tearful and had recognized one of the um the musicians who was a steel guitar player and and was just like i never thought i'd see him again uh, so the idea that through the screen, through this archival screening, he had seen his friend again, albeit on screen, was really interesting to me. So these moments of connection, these moments of reaching back through the television archive, and I think it has that makes a kind of broader argument about the value of television archives for people. Like we often talk about TV archives as important because they capture a national history or you know, they they are also, you know, there are document of all kinds of developing forms of, of theatre or drama or music or you know, they capture the national culture of, of a particular time. But I think this project has also taught me that 
archives can be family albums as well. Like the BBC archive is owned by the nation, was made for the nation, but actually it contains family histories and affective histories that are really, really significant to particular individuals that have nothing to do with kind of national histories and everything to do with kind of personal family histories. So again, that idea of of being haunting, a haunting isn't necessarily, I think, in as my book is developing a, a, a bad thing. Haunting can be a moment of trauma, but it can also be a moment of reconnection and a kind of a warmer, more more kind of, not nostalgic, but yeah, a kind of emotional experience that's about it, about reconnection or about connection. So I'm, I'm sort of, I'm in the midst of kind of reflecting on these moments where people have come along and also people seeing themselves when younger, I think it's really interesting that people had a number of encounters of people coming in who who seen themselves as as a young person and kind of yeah, reflecting on what that emotional experience is like for people as a kind of as a kind of form of personal haunting is in what I'm interested in at the moment. It sounds absolutely lovely, and I yeah I've never thought about using archives in this way. So I'm, I want to know more. But I will move on to uh, one of your other books, which is called Spectacular Television: Exploring Televisual Pleasure, and it was published in 2016. And you won, and I don't know if the acronym is BAFTSS or a BAFTS award for monograph of the year in 2017 and the book emphasizes the spectacular qualities of television and challenges the often reinscribed idea that cinema is more capable of being spectacular than television is and in it you have a section on the limits of corporal spectacle on television where you consider the dead and dying on screen yeah but this was the this was the bit of my book that sort of has transformed into the current project that I'm working on because the the moment that you just referred to, Renska, is the bit I, it's part of a chapter that's about the ways that television documentaries really explore the body and spe- spectacularize the body. So take us inside the body or take us into kind of, you know, intimate I look at things like embarrassing bodies and the moments where the body becomes a, a spectacle in and of itself. And then the final section of the book. So I was looking particularly, there's a series called The Human Body uh, made by Robert Winston for the BBC. And that's really an example of the kind of TV that kind of takes us on a a, a sort of like a roller coaster ride through the human body and inside through blood cells, through the brain or whatever it is. um, And, you, you know, uses CGI to explore the inside of the body. But then there's this moment in the final episode of that documentary where they broadcast the death of a um, a man. I can't remember now what what his, what his death, what he's dying of. I write about it in the book. I've forgotten. It's a point where the documentary becomes kind of more lyrical and contemplative. So the body becomes less spectacularized and and it's the first example that I wrote about of what I'm calling autopathography in in the current book where it becomes not just about the spectacle of this person's body failing but rather about trying to convey the experience of death and how you might die a good death so how the people around you experience your death as well as 
the person dying. And so, yeah, so there's this moment where I'm sort of saying this, these documentaries are all about the spectacle of the body. When they deal with death, they suddenly kind of pull back and think in, in more con contemplative ways about experience. So that then becomes what I then historicize in the first chapter of the new book is really kind of looking back and saying, actually, there's a history of this kind of programming on TV that takes this kind of slow, contemplative, autobiographical uh, look at death and dying experiences. So that's kind of how we get from spectacular television to where we where I end up with. I mean, I also, so for example, also write in spectacular television about Gunther von Hagen's TV program, programming, and which is really about the kind of autopsies on screen is precisely about the kind of the the kind of visual spectacle of death on television. But von Hagen's is is kind of unusual. I think what's more usual is are these kind of slower, contemplative, experiential, poetic sort of documentaries about dying experiences, which is where I end up with in the new. I love how your work is like coming full circle. Maybe I've only got like three ideas, so I just keep coming back to them over and over again. <laughs> and before we let you go, we always love some advice. And I've been told you once gave Beth some lovely advice on Twitter on living with young children. So <laughs> I can't yeah. remember what I said. Good night, Beth. So is there any advice, life advice or career advice you would like to share with our listeners? Wow. I can't, I, I'm, the reason why I was slightly kind of, oh, what did I say to Beth is because I, I hate people giving me advice about my kids because generally, you know, we all just muddle through and do our best. And I think... Um, yeah, when, particularly when you're juggling academic careers with, with bringing up children or doing other kinds of caring, caring for elderly relatives and things, we have to just accept that we're all trying our best and so, sometimes our best is, is, is good enough. I think the best advice anybody ever gave to me as a, as a young academic was that there's not just a single way to be an academic and that you do the kinds of academic work that really kind of feed you and make you feel passionate and excite you. And so a lot of my work, particularly the, the work in Coventry is a really good example. That's, I love talking, you may have noticed. I love talking to people. Um, that has been a real opportunity for me to have conversations with people about how television has been meaningful in, for, and to them. So I've chosen a kind of, career path that enables me to talk to lots of people about my work but for some people the idea of doing what I do would be horrific and there are different ways to be an academic you can be the academic who doesn't do that or so find your own path through it do the things that make you happy accept that you can't be everywhere all of the time I guess it's about accepting our limitations and, and yeah, doing, doing the stuff that makes us excited. Thank you, Helen. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. And you. Thank you so much for having me. There. Again, so many 
interesting things and so much food for thought. And I also, I scribbled down the names of various programs and films I think I'm going to watch after this. And it also, it really made me think about like which TV death has been the most memorable. And I think for me, the first television or movie death I really really remember is going to the cinema as a small child with my mom and going to watch The Lion King and watching Mufasa die and I think I cried I think with me the entire cinema or all the children were in tears and I think that is one of (laughs) my first memories of a television death and since then also with just what I like to watch there's been so many others so do you have any memorable television deaths that really stuck with you? Oh, definitely. The the one I mentioned on, on Ray Donovan, I think, affected me more now as I, having had children. But when I was younger, Buffy's mum, big one for me, Buffy's mum. And Helen asked on Twitter a while back, what are the TV deaths that most affected you? And a lot of people said Buffy's mum. So that was a an interesting one. I think Buffy in general just has a special place in my heart. So a lot of those ones I did find difficult. One that kind of haunted me for a long time. I must have watched at a really young age when my older siblings were watching things. And it was a, of a TV show that was on in the UK that was about, like a, I think it's about like a Scottish policeman or something. There was a death in it where someone had climbed inside a coffin to hide with some money and then had been cremated. Now, actually, I think that maybe the person wasn't in the coffin and they just put the money in there. But for some reason, because I think, gosh, how could it have actually been the person if it was, as I think, quite a family oriented show? So I I don't even know. I think the show was called like Hamish Macbeth or something. But anyway, I was really freaked out by it, really freaked out by the idea that you'd be accidentally cremated alive. And then I remember doing some research on the television show Torchwood a few years back because they did this like offshoot TV series where death stopped and, and people stopped dying and you have to deal with the fact that the population is growing massively every second because people won't die anymore and they might be incapacitated but they're still alive one of the torchwood episodes not from that series but from another one got a really high level of complaints because it was about people communicating from the other side after they've died and the message they decode is don't cremate me and it really upset people understandably it was a really really troublesome kind of message and and the build up to it and the suspense of what's this message going to be what's this message going to be and then of course it was a message and you hear all these different voices saying don't create me don't create those kind of quite memorable death related television moments I think are really interesting in the kind of anxieties they express both for me as a child about what stressed me out and and what culturally I think is is quite an upsetting and, and worrisome message for others I think it's still the case because I also recently saw, I think it's from the UK, a picture of a sign with crematorium and then behind it is an advertisement for McDonald's McCrispy, which I, I, I thought it was funny, but they took it down and there were so many complaints. So there's clearly something also there that I, it's obvious, at least to me, I don't think it was intentional that those things were in the same place, but just combining two things, people were not happy. Yeah, it was in Cornwall. I think I sent it to you because, it, yeah, it did. People did get upset by it. And I really enjoyed um, Helen's conversation as well about TV as death education. And I definitely, with my anthropological eyes, if I watch something and it's not set in a country I'm familiar with, 
I do have to also remind myself, like I'm not watching a documentary. And even if I were watch, be watching a documentary, this is one representation of the way things might work. But it's, I find that particularly like a funeral and I've never been to a UK or US funeral. So that's like, oh, that's just what they do over there. So it's interesting how you take things, but then also you never really know, even I think if you are from a place, to what extent that is what people actually do or whether it's just cinematically nice to portray it in a certain way. For sure. And that tension then between emotional realism and realism, realism kind of comes comes to the fore because it's difficult to know how accurate representation is or, of course, how much that can vary within a particular context. I really like the idea of emotional realism, applying that to ideas around death and loss. I think you know that I am someone who's a big crier, so I will be moved by lots of of film and television representations but the education the sort of death education stuff I think as well can be quite interesting in terms of that tension between documentary and fiction but also about raising points about how people might want to imagine the afterlife how people might want to imagine death and dying and what those things look like there is a lot of stuff you can conclude I think by watching people's televisual imaginings or or imaginings in in film or any other visual media in terms of what it might tell you about a particular cultural ideal or or what people might want to to think or consider there just there are so many texts there are so many potential ways of thinking things through but when patterns start to emerge across them you can start to think well maybe that's maybe that's something that really plays on people's minds or is is a really important thing. So I'm thinking recently, for example, about a lot of TV shows like Upload, if you've seen that on Amazon Prime, and several other TV shows that are about the idea of a digital afterlife, where someone might be, for example, uploaded into the ether, like you do with your photographs, to continue to exist afterwards. So I think a lot of stuff about the technologization of death and dying is becoming quite evident across different media. So you can start to see why people might want to imagine those kind of things, because they are on our mind. But I feel increasingly the the era that people are going back to at the moment, a lot of it is the 90s, and which is <laughs> like when we grew up. And I, I recently uh, watched Dairy Girls and there is one scene where an aunt dies and they're all at the wake around the coffin and James, the English character, is freaking out because there's <laughs> a dead body in the room and everyone else is, yeah, of course, like... <laughs> What's the big deal? So, But also that entire show, it's very upbeat and funny, but so much around that is like the the troubles and bombings and death is there, but it's still all of this show so much, but it's still light. And I find that really interesting as well, how television can be very heavy and very light at the same time. And it's taking the piss out of Irish culture a lot, by, but also British culture and all kinds of things. But it has so many layers and so many responses. And it, yeah, it also watching that scene and like, yeah, why aren't they using the dead body or showing the dead body in the UK or in other places? There's, there's so much that TV can confront you with. Definitely. You'll have to watch the most recent series of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia for a really interesting depiction of death in Ireland that blends that incredibly poignant sadness with humour at the same time. And it can be so impactful then, I think, because you're getting these meaningful messages in the context of characters you've grown to know and love, or even if they're like really awful people, (laughs) and find it really moving. 
I think you make a really interesting point about that absence presence of bodies as well, because there seems to be this real division between television where you've got constant littering of corpses. And we sort of talked and written before about this real idea of a lots of dead women on screen and lots of disposable dead female bodies as, as part of this kind of media landscape of crime drama in particular, where there just seem to be so many female victims. I remember we had a long debate once about whether there were more or an equal balance of male and female dead characters on the TV show Castle, because in the first season, they alternate male-female dead bodies throughout, and they stop doing it at some point during the series, and it suddenly starts to become more women. What I would do to get the people who wrote that in a room and find out what was going on there. But in those series, there's a lot of death, but it's it's never really, you know, sad. It's not intended to be particularly sad. They're not emotive. It's really interesting how those images can be used in a way that in it, the context is everything in terms of whether it's emotive or not. And I think that's where some of that criticism comes from in Death Studies as a sort of area or Death Studies adjacent work that says that television, film, these sorts of things are problematic video games, in particular in terms of representations of death and dying without that emotional resonance. Is that that being troublesome or risky or dangerous? And I think a lot of stuff in like childhood and youth studies area as well has been around that potential negative impact of this kind of media on children and young people but I guess that's not really what I tend to engage with so I I tend to think of a a more sort of positive death education from film and television rather than a a problematic one where I guess of course both exist yeah I find it that always difficult as well because I also know that for example the show um what's it called 13 reasons why about a young girl who takes her own life and it's certain reasons why she took her own life and there was so much around that show and how it portrayed suicide etc and I'm sure a lot of that is valid but I also always wonder it's one portrayal and it's not a show that claims to tell the story of suicide so I also find that tension very very interesting how people can lash out or feel it might have a big impact on a large group of people but also I feel with deaths and dying a lot of it is also unknown like there is some research on how audiences respond to things but also there are so many people potentially watching and they can go in all sorts of directions so again it's very tv is more complicated than people give it credit for which I know you've been shouting about all the time but it really is. Oh, and you put it so well, don't you? And I'm so glad you see it that way. I've got a chapter coming out next year on these sorts of ideas about death and television in the context of the TV show Squid Game where there was a lot of, of that kind of stuff and I think you're right that when it's aimed at or about young people then it's well you're really into controversial territory then aren't you? Young people death that that kind of mix. And I know you were very interested in the work around commentary and the idea of having this archival stuff where you might go along and see people on the screen that that have died that you were related to or you knew or you've met before and that might be a surprise or you might be expecting it. I just thought that whole project just sounds so lovely and also to use buildings or places for research or to show a movie in an, or a documentary or just I archival work in an unexpected environment to have that another layer of oh it used to be a fish and chip shop and now we're watching a film I <laughs> I'm gonna do a, a COVID confession during lockdown or d- just during the pandemic when I wasn't able to fly home to my family in the Netherlands for about a year 
and <laughs> on YouTube, there are the the tram lines. There's a camera in the front of the tram line, and I've watched like different tram lines in Amsterdam. And uh, watching that, like it's a route I used to take or places I've used to visit. So I can only imagine just. I could have like seen someone there that I know. So I just think this idea of watching all f footage and you could see someone you may have known or just places and probably buildings that no longer exist. And there's so much in there that I just find fascinating. And I said this before we started recording, but I know the archives in the Netherlands are limited because also film used to be so expensive. So a lot of television shows they just no longer exist because they reuse the tapes. I also think we can now just record wh whatever we want, whenever we want, but people, oh, even when I was a child, I had a camera with either 24 photos on a roll or 36. And I really, with one holiday, I had to really think, but I'm getting old, but I had to think about which photos. And now you can just do whatever. So I just find it nice that what is still existing, that someone like Helen just uses it in such a, creative and new way and such a nice thing for the communities there as mm. well you, you're so right about the kind of quantities I do wonder about the people of the future in terms of people doing this kind of research in the future how they're going to deal with that absolute glut of stuff I've had an email a little while ago saying that I was going to have to start paying for storing my photos in the cloud because I've got so many and I was like this has gone too far like what am I going to do in 20 years if I'm lucky enough to still be here? It's going to be, what, hundreds of pounds for this class. So I was like, I'm going to go through everything. So I go, I went back and it was interesting to see like, well, where did the photo start? When did I first get a phone or a camera that could take a digital photo? And how did I upload that? Suddenly it gets more and more and more and at the points at which it kind of gets more because camera phones get better or things like that. Or, and I've just got to like the year that my daughter was born and then there's like hundreds of photos of like do I keep them all do I delete some so and obviously that's just my archive of stuff but if you're looking at that on a sort of broader cultural and social level how do you decide what what you're going to pick and what you're going to consider of value and useful but I I loved what Helen came up with in terms of the idea of being haunted warmly of a warm haunting that haunting has these negative connotations but as you say if you're watching this tram footage and you see someone from the past that you you know alive or who's who's died and is that necessarily going to be troublesome to you or could that be like a warm digital haunting of something that brings you comfort brings you some kind of pleasant feelings some kind of nice I'm hoping that in the future we'll have more people who uh, research film uh, or any kind of creative popular culture portrayal of death dying the dead digital deaths because I feel it, it just opens up little nooks in my brain to be like yeah or as you just said do I want to be an AI kind of thing or would I still be that and there's so much we could <laughs> continue to discuss. Absolutely and we've got some really exciting episodes coming up as well in terms of looking into different disciplines different areas and I feel there's still a lot of disciplinary areas we haven't covered that we will want to keep bringing in. We hope that you find this episode and our others rewarding. It was great to see some tweets and stuff on social media recently talking about the idea of this podcast as a kind of archive itself of death studies scholars and things like that so you know if there are people you're really keen to hear on here do drop us the name they might already be on our list and it's just that we haven't got to them yet thank you for listening to the death studies podcast you can find out more about our guests and their work in the show notes or on our website 
devstudypodcast.com. If you enjoyed listening to us, please leave us a comment, follow us on social media at the Deaf Podcast, and of course, spread the word. <laughs>